I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. So welcome to this very special edition of uh, Pushback Talks, because uh, last week, a few days ago, we talked to Nicholas Burton uh, of, from Grenfell United, our friend and one of the survivors of, of the Grenfell fire and tragedy. And Nicholas, uh, we met outside the church just a few days, weeks after the fire. Remember our, our meeting when I asked you to, if I could film? Yes, I, I remember very clearly. Um, I was still a bit dazed when um, when we first met on the street there, because I was asked to come and have a, a discussion. And um, to tell you the truth, I didn't actually know too much in depth what it was about. But once you started talking about, you know, you're going to go around the world, talking about marginalization of um, communities, then it kind of that okay marginalization this is what's happening to us you know our, our, we've got a lot of pressures on our on our community and it's an amazing community where we live in in notting hill and most a lot of people have seen the film so they kind of fantasize that it's so fantastic but the community is actually very interwoven with one another lots of people have come in uh, from all around the world and and gelled very well but the pressures of um, the elite and the wealthy, they they want that land from the normal people. And when I met you, I really wanted to have a story from from one of the from one of the community. So you were actually not. I was not only going for your story from the fire. Actually, for your experience as being a Notting Hill residents for many many years, Leilani, how how did you react on when you first heard Nicola's story? Oh, well, of course, I was incredibly moved to hear Nicholas's story. I was amazed at Nicholas's clarity, though, of the relationship between what happened to him personally and this bigger political and socioeconomic context. To, to have the ability to move outside of one's deeply personal and tragic circumstances and to seize and understand that bigger macro piece is is highly unusual. It's, it's phenomenal and a gift to the world, actually, Nicholas. So I, I was just overwhelmed by all of that all at once. And, and I have so enjoyed knowing you and, and talking with you since. Yeah. I think also the full team that filmed you that day, we were like... We were we were so blessed by by the clarity of your story, and and now I think we should just listen to this full interview. It's yeah. it will run for a while, yeah. and I, but I think this is should be a part of the investigation because this is the first time you are telling this story in full. So please please listen to Nicholas Burton just a few weeks after the Grenfell tragedy. I'm gonna put my tea down. So. You, can, you can have the tea in your hand. It's not yeah. a problem. You feel free to drink whatever yeah. you feel. <laughs> That's not, it's not the problem. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy days. Yeah, it's absolutely um, unprecedented in this country that this this tragedy could happen to us. We feel we're meant to feel safe in our own homes, and um, and then to be 
subjected to something that, you know, that shouldn't have happened. So there's people out there that are responsible for our safety and responsible for the tragedy for the people that have passed in our tower. And um, over the, the years, these people, we've been informing them about the situation of our estate. We live in, in a, an estate and then the, the risk to us, because we, we've engaged with them, but they've just taken it that we're, we're not worthy enough or um, we're not important enough to, to be listened to. So we live in, um, actually we live in an amazing place. This, this is, you know, this is not poverty at its worst. And I understand that the, the world is, sometimes dangerous, sometimes amazing, and people live in real strife about their, their lives. You know, they're fighting every day for their lives and for their children's lives. So we, we live in some kind of, kind of, it's not luxury, but we live in a, an area that is so effluent that it's, it's beyond belief. But here, we talk about the divide between the, the poor part of the the poor people and the rich and the divide is absolutely massive tell me about uh, the tower i've i've lived in the tower for probably 33 years since 1984 when i met my wife so and and i was born just five minutes from here and a lot of my family's from around here and still around here but Grenfell Tower, and you know, when I moved in, I, I, the flats are lovely. They're, they're very big and bright, and I, I live on the 19th floor. And, um, yeah, I, I, I actually liked it. But then as time went on, you kind of, and the regentification of the area and the plans, they, you, know, you know, I was very proud to live in Notting Hill. It's a kind of, when you go somewhere, where do you live? Oh, Notting Hill, because they've heard about the film or whatever. And think, yeah, Notting Hill. And, um, and the market is just one of the most amazing places in, in London, you know. And um, but the Tower Block, I was always very excited and living there because of the views, you know, the sunsets and the light in, in the flats are amazing. And then with the regentification of the area, with the new school and new leisure centre, that's going to attract the, the wealthy people to come down to the area. And then when you looked at the tower, then you kind of felt kind of sad, like it, now it looks old. They were built like, I think from 1974, you know, concrete tower. And you looked at anything, really it doesn't, it's like a sore thumb and they need something doing. It's not, and, and people are call, calling for it to, you know, it looks out of place, maybe bring it down, maybe make, lower um, flats, but um, I was actually quite happy when they put clad in and we'd done a little bit of work on the, on the flats. Um, but then I didn't understand that really, maybe it's like an ugly woman, they're just putting makeup on it, but really you're still ugly underneath. And that's what we found out to be the truth, where we were put at risk. But inside the flats, they were very, very nice. And uh, we put a lot of work and effort into making a, a safe place for ourselves. But if you wanted to stay in the community, 
you were also had to stay in the tower. There was Absolute, no other alternative. No, because we couldn't afford, you know, before, you know, what happened in the like 80s and 90s, people had the right to buy. So we, we purchased our flat in 94. But as the, as people started to become, you know, Labbott Grove and Porto Bay become very trendy, that we had kind of like the kind of bohemian type of, you know, some pop stars and people moving into the area because they, they like the, the vibe. The vibe is really cool. Go down to Portobello on a Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and even Sunday. The vibe is there, so you have people coming in. And I think in 1999, with the, the film um, Notting Hill, you know, that kind of brought more attention, you know, to you know, people who've seen the, the film. They come over from all around the world. They want to see where the blue door is. They want to see this, the, the bookshop. And um, so, it became a very, very trendy place to, to live. Tell me, Nicholas, I, I hear a lot of people saying or carrying this feeling that they want us out of this community. Is that something you all do? Do you also share? It's, it's an underlying thing. People will shout on it now, but it's been an underlying thing where people have been like secretly moved out. You ask for a move, they move you out to maybe Hounslow or somewhere out of the borough. The, 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 the rich are slowly encroaching on every single property that is available here. So there's no true, you know, everything is being snapped up. And before the people who did have the right to buy, um, bought their houses. And of course, as the house prices went up, they sold and moved on. So they actually, those people moved out the area because they've they got a, a quick buck and then they moved out. And then the more wealthier people bought those houses and done them up. You know, it, it didn't look always look like this. Those, those nice structured houses around Victorian houses used to look like a shambles before and used to be multi-occupied with, you know, three or four people in a room, um, people charging extortionate rents and kind of, Blackmailing people and then keeping them keeping them down, but slowly, when um, they bought their flats and then they moved out. So, the the, the kind of people who think this area is trendy, they're buying, they're snapping up every property, and the prices are just astronomical. I mean, I went I went to the Downing Street for uh, about Grenfell Tower, and the the Prime Minister offered a relief fund of five million pounds, but I said. Five million pounds, if I just go down the road here, you wouldn't even get a garage in one of the houses, just one of the houses on one of the streets here. You wouldn't be able to afford the garage. So it's, it's unbelievable how the, the wealthy are just forcing people out. And over a generation, they, they will, people won't be able to live around here. And even, even the estate will probably one time become private. They'll do it up. Make it acceptable, but people will be forced out. So, if you, if you could just dream and, and decide over the housing situation in London, how would you like it to be? Well, the the problem is, in London is a bit different, but in, in in the borough, but there's no more philanthropy. We back in the day, you had philanthropists with 
we've got people with billions and billions beyond belief. And, of course, they're keeping their money. And the, the government are trying to build houses, but they don't really... It's not, it's not fast enough. With the growth of the city, it's, it's, that's why the, all the rents are going up. And with philanthropy, back in the 19th century, you had people like the, the Guinness family, Peabody. You had all these, these people that used to build social housing. You know, and, you know, the, they took, got taken over by the council, so there's council stock and council houses for, for people who can't afford. The people, you know, who work in the hospitals, the, the people who protect us, the police and the fire brigade and, and all those other people, and, and just normal, everyday people. We, we, we haven't got that kind, of, that kind of social housing, true social housing that these people used to, to, to provide. For, they, in that days, they provide for the poor. And it was only for the poor, but then they got bought up and sold on and everything. And there's none of that kind of stuff happening. And, um, you know, you know, and I understand London is very dense and very, you know, compact. And the land is very valuable to whoever. And, but there's no true social housing being built, you know. They're just moving people out. And I understand there has to be a different way of thinking about it you know, how to protect your citizens, how to give them something where they can call home. You know, a lot of people live in, in shambles or they're fighting or they live, you know, six or seven to a room. A friend of mine lived in a room with 16 people with bunk beds, everything, and he's paying £800 for the privilege. Now? Yeah, he's, got, he's gone back to Spain, a uh, Spanish friend of mine, but he, he was living in a room with 16 people and paying... £800 a month for the privilege. Yeah, we, in, in London, 16 people. I couldn't believe it myself, but it's happening. You know, people are living on floors or, or living together. They can't afford, they have to do it as a, as a community. And, and, that, and it's not their fault. There's no, even on, on the outskirts of London, is you, you can't afford, you know, the houses are just, just astronomical, and trying to get a mortgage or anything is really, really um, difficult. Because the banks don't want to give you money; they don't want to take a chance because most people will will, will fail. Would you mind tell me about the, the fire? Yeah, the that day. What? Where were you doing? The the day of the fire. I was actually my wife was actually on the sofa. And I was actually laying on the floor, but I was like asleep, and. Um, yeah, it was unbelievable. I couldn't actually even believe it. But somebody banged hard on my door. So I just woke up. My wife's sick anyway, but she's just laying there. And then I just went to my door thinking, what's this? It's late, or it's early, late, whatever. And then I opened the front door, and it was just a blanket of black smoke. I couldn't even see out the door, so it kind of, the smoke rushed in. So I just closed the door very calmly thinking, um, oh, there's a fire. But in the old days, without the cladding and everything, we never knew that was going to happen. Most fires are contained in the building. The structure of the building is... The, a fire will happen, it's contained, you know, with the concrete, it won't, ex, won't go anymore with the fire doors. And the fire brigade tell you to stay indoor because 99% of the time, that's how... Um, how it works.
So I wasn't actually really too concerned. I thought maybe the smoke's come up the, the vents. And um, so I just went back in. Uh, just got a towel, put it underneath the door. So I've done fire training at work and things like that. So I thought maybe I'll do that. And then my friend started to call me and said, Nick, there's a fire. I said, yeah, I just saw the smoke. He said, no, 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 it's a real fire. So I said, OK. And then, then he phoned back again. Say, Nick, you need to leave the house. So, so I thought, really? So I, I got my wife up. We, there was still no panic in me. And I thought, Billy, um, let's, let's get dressed. Let's get dressed, just in case we're going to have to evacuate because there's a lot of smoke outside. So it took us a bit of time just to get my wife ready. So I opened the door again, and again, I couldn't see nothing. So I closed the door, and... I knew, because we lived on the 19th floor, and my wife is very weak, that we were not going to be able to get out the, the tower, the, just with the smoke alone. I wasn't even thinking about fire, the flames. So, after a while, and I, I looked out the window, I could see the glow of the fire on the right-hand side. And, and I was still really calm. I'm thinking, I better phone the, the fire brigade to just inform them that we are in our flat. So I informed them, say, yes, please stay in your flat, sir. We know you're there now. And then my friend kept phoning back in a panic now. He was saying, Nick, I said, but I can't leave. I can't leave my wife. We're not going to make it if there's, if there's this, the lift area and the stairwell is full of smoke. We're not going to make it. But he said, you need to leave now. I said, Simon, I can't, I can't take my wife. She won't make it. Even just out into the cold, I won't be able to carry her down 38 flights of stairs. I, I won't be able to do it. It's, it's impossible. I need to wait. And he said, I'm phoning the fire brigade as well. I'm telling them, go to your flat. Because I think they did some kind of thing where they go to the flats that they knew that people were in, instead of going floor by floor, because the sense of urgency was upon them because of the, the state of how the fire took hold. It's just, I've seen the pictures on the television and it's just unprecedented. It's a truly a towering inferno. It's truly, I don't know. So, so waited and waited and waited and phone calls, my friends, and he was truly panicked for us. And, and then I, was look, I had to look out the window and, so I went to my living room window and looked out there because I couldn't see the fire that side. But there was hundreds of people downstairs screaming, like, to get out. So I could, so I could just about here, but I closed the window. And I thought, let me close the windows because the air acts as a, a, vent, for, um, a vent for the fire, if there is a fire. And... Um, yeah, and then I, I looked at the bedroom window and I could, I could see the glow come in. I thought, oh, my days, this is really serious now, really serious. But I can't leave my wife. It's impossible. And then um, so I phoned the fire brigade again, told them, I've got my wife and I, she's, she's sick, and you need to come for us. And say, yes, we know you're there. So, um... You know, we waited and waited, and now it's like a couple of hours into the fire. 
and the fire took hold really quickly so the whole tower's engulfed and um, you know these brave firemen are running into this you know the into the mouth of the dragon it's just intense but and then um, I just waiting I thought what do I need okay my passport get my passport so I went into the bedroom but then I could see the flames now at my window the bedroom window so I grabbed my passport I closed the door oh my god this um, is this the way uh, we're gonna go and then my friend Simon said Nick you need to go into the living room go go to the living room so we, we were actually already in the living room and then then he finally said now go to the kitchen go to because things are happening fast so I brought my wife into the kitchen and I thought, let me actually take her to near the front door. They're going to come for us, go to the, where the bathroom is, sit her there. And so I sat on the, on the bath and just waited. And, um, yeah, just waited. And then I heard a noise outside, so I banged on the, on the door, and it was a fire brigade. And they said, um, yes, we know you're there. But can you hold on one second, your neighbour? And then I hear bang, like the door being either kicked in or something from my neighbour's door. And someone was saying, just prepare yourself. You need to get a wet towel. I already had wet towels ready. And um, just said, like, prepare yourself. So, you know, really it still didn't strike me how devastating the, the tower, even though I've seen flames at my window, I was still like, Blase about it. I, I don't know why. And um, it was, you know, the thing was where we were standing was hazy because we'd all let some smoke in. But, was, but you know that that sense of faith that I think I thought everything's going to be okay. We're going to go out there, but it, everything's going to be okay. We get to the stairwell. I think we're just going to walk down nicely, but it's just that we couldn't see out. So when we did get the okay from the fire officers to um, to be, prepare ourselves to leave. So I opened the door, and because they, they told us that make sure we got the towels and everything ready, because we're gonna we're gonna leave. So I opened the door, and it's just a it's pitch black. I couldn't see the fire officers. So then I see an, an arm up to about here come through the smoke, and kind of grab my wife, and then another arm on the other side come to to kind of grab myself. And I said, how about my dog, my dog? The officer said, no, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go. So I just looked at my dog, and I, it's just, and I made, my dog's my, like my child. It's um, a two-year-old beagle called Lewis Hamilton II, but he chose his own name. We give him the options, and he liked Lewis, so, so he was, yeah, it's amazing, but, um, one fire officer grabbed my wife and I grabbed her waist and then we, we were off into the darkness. And then I lost my wife. So I was screaming, like, where's my wife, where's my wife? Someone was saying, we've got her, we've got her, don't worry, we've got her. But I was saying, where's my wife? And I, I panic and then my heart rate started to like, go up then. So I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see my feet. I couldn't see the officer next to me. Then I had the, the towel and we made our way into the stairwell. And I was like, 
oh, there's no lights, there's nothing. I can't even see my feet. You know, I can't even look down and see my legs or anything. It was just pure darkness. And then I started to take in the, 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 um, the smoke into my lungs and try to breathe. And the, but then the realisation is that we've got 20, um, 20, sorry, 38 flights of stairs to go to. So I thought, oh my God. So I, I grabbed the, the, the inner rail that goes down and the fire officer was to my left, going, must have been going along the wall. So we started making our way down and, and around and around and around and around. And I don't know, because there's stairs and there's flat bits and stairs, but I don't know how we got down, because the fire officer had me tightly, just screaming in my ear, you know, words of encouragement. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Then, you know, in the back of my mind, where's my wife, where's my wife? I need to get my wife. And then I'm going down, and then I'm treading on things. I think, oh, they must have the water pipes already in the stairwell. But then the realisation, no, I think it's people. I think I'm treading on, on, on bodies. I'm treading on something, something is, is, that is in my way. And let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, maybe I'm not going to make it, because now my 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 breathing is taking another thing of air. So I actually had to stick the towel in the back of my throat because it was there's no clean. Yeah, this this is just smoke going in. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get through? Because I'm now starting to get lightheaded. But then I thought, Nick. You used to do scuba diving. You don't need to breathe a hundred million things. Like when you go scuba diving, the first few times you go down, you're breathing. You've got to come up in ten minutes because you've run out of oxygen. But as you kind of calm down, so I'm trying to tell myself, calm down. We're still actively running and moving and landing on things and the stairwell and, and my wife. I tried to calm my breathing down. So, my wife is on my mind, my, my, my legs are starting to give way and my breathing is coming like, I still think we've got a, a way to go and maybe I, I won't be able to, to breathe and I'll pass out or, but I've got the, the fire officer there so he probably won't let me go even if I pass out. So I just tried, but let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. You can do it, we're going, you're going to make it, let's go. And then I'm going down the inner, holding the railing. But now the railings are getting hot, or getting warm, and then getting hot. And it's at one point I, I couldn't touch the inner, the, the handrail, because it was burning, so I had to take my hand off. So the fire must have, have been super hot there or penetrated the stairwell, because it was still pitch black, it was still dark. And, you know, and thinking, oh my God, so I take my hand off and just kind of I've got, I've got my, hold my blanket because it was still wet, so I put my, my hands up. Let's go, let's go, let's go. So then finally, the breakthrough. My legs were going, the guy's holding me up. We, but we come to, like, the last few stairs and I think there's light. And I've still got the towel on my head. But I think, oh God, I've made it, I've made it. We come, we come out into like the landing there, and there's a there's an atrium. And and the guy 
I still didn't see them. Kind of, I think he passed me over to somebody else, and they kind of took me out into this three-floored atrium, but and said, "Let's go out the building. Let's go somebody else now." I said, "I'm not going." They said, "No, you need to go. Let's go." I said, "I'm not going. I'm not going nowhere." I said, "My wife is still there, and I'm waiting here." And they said, "No, you can't wait." I said, "I'm waiting here." I'm sorry. That's it. Then there's a door into the. There's, we have a boxing club in the building. So they said, they said, go stand over there, out the way. And then they disappeared. So I just waited there. It was a lifetime. So I was waiting. It could have been five minutes, could have been ten minutes. I'm still waiting and waiting for my wife to appear. So, and waiting, the time's ticking on. I've still got the towel and just tick, 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 what's happened to my wife? And then all of a sudden, I see four fire officers, one on each limb. So she was backwards, and they'd cut her clothes off, except for her top. So they cut her trousers off, took the cardigan, shoes, underwear, everything. She was, um, four officers come flying down with her, and I thought she was dead. That was my cue to move. So I, I followed down the stairs, and um, they just went rushing out of the tower and um, I, I, I came out of the tower just like, really, is this what's happened? No, I'm alive, but I don't know what's really happened. And, and then I see some officers and some people, and because we're directly under the thing, there's debris coming down, so they had a, 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 like a riot shield, and they're, now they're telling me, let's move now, so there's debris coming down from the building right outside the exit there and I just got rushed towards the green. So the officers were taking my wife already, so I just followed on as, like, walking wounded. So, and then I, I looked back and I saw the horror of the, just the tower, just beyond belief that, you know, we escaped that. And, and just, it was just horrifying that. I just looked back the once, I couldn't, myself again to, to look so I followed I followed on and my wife there was a triage section there's like a red mat yellow mat and blue mat my wife got straight onto the red mat because she was out and the ambulance um, lady came and took me says you okay you okay so I'm fine so they took me to a bit further along to the blue mat so uh, I kind of collapsed there, sat there against the wall. So I saw two people I knew, I said, hi. And I said, oh, how's your wife? So how's your wife? So I looked over, but I saw somebody having CPR. So um, I thought, oh my God, my wife is dead. There's something's happening to her. So um, I tried to stand up, but the ambulance person said, no, you need to stay there. I said, I can't. I need to go and see my wife. So I tried trying to get up. But she said, no, you need to stay there, please. Stay there. But then now it's all getting congested and lots of people around. I couldn't see where, where my wife was on, on the, the red mat. And I'm trying to like, trying to stand up to, to go. I thought, I'm going to force my way through, but uh, I couldn't really stand up. And then... I, I don't 
there was a time, it must have been like five minutes. And, you know, people were trying to reassure me, you need to stay here, sir. And then, and then all of a sudden, my wife is being escorted and says, is this your wife, sir? And the relief was like overwhelming. So it wasn't actually my wife having CPR because they wouldn't have, they would have put on a stretcher and took her away straight away. So she must have been laying next to that person and they brought her over. So we embraced everything. And then she was up, of course, crying and everything. And then I, I stood, I actually got up, and, but, but then my legs gave way and the, the, fire, um, the ambulance person said, let's go, because I couldn't breathe then. So they put me onto the yellow mat and put me on oxygen. And then I had an eye on my wife, just sitting against the warm people talking to her. And, um, and then next thing I looked around, she was gone. So I've got oxygen, I'm trying to take it off. I said, where's my wife? I said, oh, they're taking an ambulance. I said, I need to go now, I need to go with her in the ambulance. And I said, OK, one second. So they went off to find my wife. And they come back and said, I'm sorry, she's gone, but she's gone to Chelsea and Westminster. And they said, we'll take you. I said, I'm going to Chelsea and Westminster, I need to go now. I wanted to go with my wife, it's so unfair. You know, she's, she doesn't know where she is and what's happening. So after a little while, a stretcher came for me and put me in an ambulance and, um, and took me to Chelsea and Westminster. But then it took me 12 hours to, to find out. I thought she was gone or dead or something. And it was actually the other hospital that she's in that gave me a call to say, hey, Mr. And we got your wife here, so and it was much more relief. So that was that was my kind of night's events of of actually what happened. And there's and I'm truly blessed because some of the stories and some of the families that I'm fighting on their behalf, are, you know, their their bereavement is really hard hitting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Tell me, when did you come back here again? Yeah, they kept me overnight. I went to my mother's first. Just as I need a cuddle, need a hug, and then I made my way. She also lives here. Yeah, she just lives around the corner. And then I had to go, you know, to see my wife to give her that reassurance. I spoke to her on the phone, but you know. I'm not even too sure she, she knows what, what's really happened to her. So, but then I came back into the area probably the following day and um, just to organise stuff, come to the church here. And, um, but I, the first time I saw the tower, I was with my friends, but I had to to take a moment to digest what I was actually looking at, the horror of this burnt-out shell, what used to be my home, and knowing that my friends, my neighbours, that a lot of them are still there, and the helplessness that I can't do nothing. I went on a mission to look for the people that you know, to try to find my friends and neighbours. But the place 
I know it's an eyesore, but if you stuck our towel in the in the centre of Aleppo, it wouldn't it wouldn't look out of place anyway. You just walk past it, thinking it's one of those. You know, I saw a, a picture of Aleppo. They put like a drone going through the streets, and just the devastation and the horror of what those people have been through who live there. And this would this would fit right in there. And it was just a stark um, reminder that, you know, one thing we're celebrating, you know, how the, the, the tower block looked now to make, to make it pretty, to make it look good for the, you know, for the, for the residents as well. But it's also about the eyesore for the, the wealth. Oh, look at this 1970s tower. We've got to walk past this every day, so they try to make it look nice to, for the surrounding area. But the, the horror of knowing that it could have been avoided. We, we were cheated, we were lied to, we were, you know, we, we were like second-class citizens and they didn't care about us and they just wrapped us up with, uh, with danger. And somebody knew that they'd do it on the cheap because we, we, we're not worthy. If this was Canary Wharf or if this was Knightsbridge, that would never, ever have happened. But of course, we're not worthy of having any, any true money spent on us. So they just wrapped us up in danger. And when the danger took hold, the devastation is, is, for, you, is for you to see and, and it's, seen, it's seen all around the world. You know, and the real question now is how do governments, how do people react to, to social housing, to, to people who live um, on run-down estates, who live in poverty, and, and, and how we're really treated. You know, people are pocketing their money, they've got their big jobs, and, but they don't really care. They don't really care about us and, you know, even places in Tottenham and Broadmoor, um, other estates, they've had things happen in the past and they're still run down even to this day. No investment, no true help for society. Crime is up because people got no centres to go to, no, nothing to do. And this is, we're, we're still being treated you know, like as second-class citizens because the wealth, the, their focus is on keeping the wealthy people happy and forcing out the, the poor in society. You know, everybody's being moved out. They're being, houses knocked down and, and you know, and you're just being moved out. And it will happen here. Now we have the opportunity to stand and fight. We, um, over the last maybe 10 years, there's been a thing called a, the TMO to tenants management organisation who took over the responsibility from the council to, to manage the estates and housing stock around the Royal Borough. So we've been in constant battle with them because they, they don't listen. They don't listen at all. And we've been asking them, you know, time and time again about safety of our tower block and to be consulted in any things that they want to do. But they've just slam the door, they don't listen, 
It's like a naughty child just lock them in the cupboard. They, they don't want to engage. And so the anger over the years has grown with the, the, um, the, the, the residents' association. And, you know, we've been treated absolutely terribly when we realise it. You know, our, you know we, there was a fire before in the tower, one of my friend's house. And from that day, the, we have a, an association, you know, the leaseholders and the residents, and we, we've been in contact with them to say, we need to see about if, if something happened. If there was a fire, a true fire in this building, what would happen? Um, how about any fire drills? Can we have a, a fire drill? Or where's the, 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 the paperwork that people have come and done checks? Have the fire alarms been checked over, the smoke alarms, anything? And they're just, they were very blasé um, about their response. Most of it was silence. And we started emailing out to all the councillors. Then we had a kind of little bit of consultation about what they're going to do to the tower, how they're going to make it look fantastic, put new windows in. But even then, the money that they got from from that, they got £10 million. And that was the, s the sale of two flats in Chelsea. So it wasn't like out of their pocket. They sold two flats in Chelsea, got all this money to revamp the building. And then, um, but even then, the leaseholders, we had a fight on our hands for two years because they wanted to, I think it was like £64,000, they wanted to charge us for the privilege of redoing up the building. So for two years we had to fight with the TMO to say, no, this is a major, major works, and why should we have to pay when everybody gets everything else? And you want to charge us about £64,000 for the, the 12 leaseholders? Then finally we get a thing saying, no, we don't have to pay that. So that was a, a relief. But for those two years they were pressurising us and not listening to us, and £64,000 when you're just, you know, it was a lot of money and some people may have lost their homes or be forced out. So um, the consultant stage for the, the refurbishment of the block used to be very heated. We used to go to meetings. Some people were very passionate because they tell us what they're going to do, but they won't involve us. So you're sitting in a room, oh, this is how this is, the cladding's going to look like this, this. your windows are going to look like this. But there was no real engagement. The people who were telling us, they, they were very nice. I mean, very nice. I mean, very professional. And they had to keep calm, because some of the people were really passionate about being engaged with. But, of course, they just slammed that door and just went on and done what, what they did. What are, what are your claims now? It's, it's difficult. We, we're doing things behind the scenes to make sure people are being housed, people are getting what they want and but you know we're still being treated like second-class citizens with a social housing group even though most people in the tower work professional people engineers you know teachers they, they, they're not like there wasn't many people there that were like claiming benefits and even if they did that's that's nobody's business that's just their their own situation and where they find themselves in life, benefits not. Uh, it's, it's meant to be a safety net for, 
vulnerable people, but most actually people worked and, and worked hard and, you know, that was a safe place to live. It wasn't destitute, you know. They, I think in the beginning they called us like the undeserving poor. I mean, the undeserving poor. I, I never felt myself as undeserving poor because I worked hard all my life. Then my wife got sick and I had no help from the government, no income, no support, no carers allowance. So I've had the last 11 months, I've had to fund myself of looking after my wife. So we've had no income come in. It's just lucky we were savers. Otherwise, we, we will be the destitute poor and lose our house. So that's something I'm trying to address now. But yeah, I've always worked, always, you know, tried to, to help people and do things. Yeah. Do you think you will be able to stay in the community? Um, I'll make sure. I guarantee you I'll stay here. I'll fight with everything that I've got and I'll fight for the other people. They're not, I'm not going to be pushed around. You know, we're not rugby players and going full on a battle with it. We're trying to be grandmaster chess players and move one bit at a point at a time to put things into place to get people, you know, justice for what has happened to us. This is like, you know, what do they call it? You know, commercial murder, really. You know, there's technical things for it, but, you know, those people didn't have to die. So I, I will fight to stay in the area because it's well grown up. My mum's in the area, my sister, every, everybody. That community is special to me. And I won't be put out of the community. They, they have the fundings to, to house everybody. You know, I, I put a solution to people yesterday. I had a meeting yesterday. I put the solution to them. They said they can't find social housing for everybody. I said, well, it have to be social housing. I can find... I found 100 um, f houses already within the borough through the associations. And plus, look around. There's 30 estate agents around there with houses available in their windows. You can purchase those houses and give them to people. It's not the housing thing. It's your psyche that you need to keep, keep us down and you want us to put back into the same social places. And that's why a lot of people are turning them down because those places are not fit. They, they offered me one, you know, part of a run-down estate uh, that's going to be knocked down to make new houses in two years' time. So they offered me, and they offered me the place, but then they phoned me a couple of hours later and said, oh, it's already gone. It was, it's this little tick box thing for them to say that they've offered me. It wasn't really available. But I refuse. I've had guarantees that, you know, we will stay in our community and everything. The, the Prime Minister's given us those guarantees. But of course, once you start going down the scale, people are just trying to... And there's vulnerable people out there that, you know, will take any offer because they're not too sure. And that's why, behind the scenes, I'm fighting to help those people. And we're one voice to stand up and say, no, we're not going to be treated like this. And we have the power. The people don't realise we, we got the power to, you know, We've, we've done a lot of work behind the scenes. The people from the council, they've, they've gone for the pressure, not because of the pressure of the people screaming and shouting, from the people behind the scenes that are applying. We know the, the history of the council and what they've done. 
I was never against the Royal Borough, Kensington, Chelsea, never, because I think it's a great borough. But the people from the, the TMO and, and the people who we did write to, you know, they have responsibilities. They know what they've done. And, you know, some of them have just resigned, but they need to be held accountable. They need to be... There's no, like, getting away. They need to be held accountable for their actions of keeping people down. This whole estate here, Lancaster West, I mean, it's been there, what, um, you know, 40-something years, and they've still got the old window frames in, still the old kitchens, no investments have been put in, and they still want to keep it that way. They need to spend some money. I mean, the, for the whole of the estate, every single household, you know, for the price of one flat in Knightsbridge, you could make wonders in for thousands of people, but that one flat is for one family in Knightsbridge, but they, they really want to keep people down and move us out bit by bit. You don't know what's happening. And then, yeah, it's, it's really sad. And, but the community will stand strong and we're organising ourselves, not to scream and shout, but to give power to the people and instead of everybody's running around at the moment trying to get their bits and pieces. But, you know, when we come together, people are going to have to come to us and be held accountable. So we're making it happen. We're working tirelessly behind the scenes for the, the true issue on social housing has to be brought to the top of the government's agenda. It's you think if we meet now in, let's say, six months from now, what do you think where you will be at? In six months, I still think we'll be fighting. We've got a long battle. Those people in power, they're just, you know, they're just in a mindset. And it's going to take a long, for, long time for them to change their mindset. They need to be careful because the voices are, are going to be powerful and the knock-on effect around the country they're already evacuating tower blocks. They're already taking down all the cladding. Those people, they're already putting thousands of people in, in, in hotels. But the knock-on effects is going to take a longer time to have a real deep... People are going to be asking questions of the government and they're going to be demanding answers. And this whole thing of you know, social housing is going to take a long time. But we can't let it be forgotten. Once the, the press have gone away, the underlying thing is still there, so the, the voices need to be strong and they need to be heard. And they're trying to already wrap it up with a, an inquest, or sorry, an inquiry, a little bit different. But most inquiries don't come to nothing. It's just a mechanism, how I see it, for the government just to smother this. Oh, yeah, we're doing something, there's a judge. He's going to find out what happened. But he already came out and said the scope is going to be small. So we've already demanded, if he doesn't widen the scope, to understand the social bit in the beginning, what's happened, how the fire then happened, and then the aftermath of how we're going to tackle you know, social housing. If he doesn't widen it, we don't need him. I, I read on the internet the Hillsborough inquiry took 28 years, £70 million to make a 450,000-page document. And now it's only last week that six people have been charged. The Savile report for the Bloody Sunday uh, murders in 1972, I think it was, in Londonderry, that inquiry has cost between 
what I read, 163 and 400 million pounds. For those seven people, I don't know how many people died, but what a waste of money for a document to say, yeah, we did something. The document's just there to the government of the day to protect themselves. Yeah, we're doing something. You know, it's a waste. We need that money to be invested into the community. I don't care about in 10 years' time that I can read a thousand or a hundred thousand page document on how the fire happened. I need that money to be invested into our community. And we have an amazing community. And I don't know if you've seen the reaction, what happened in the outpouring of love and the people that dare to support us from all faiths, all colours, were just there. Just one family really, you know, coming out and giving their everything that they could and all the support. So the government need to be careful because um, if, the, if it's business as usual, they'll find themselves, you know, in a real social revolution, you know, to, you know, people, they want good homes. They want to be, you know, listened to and they want action. And if it's going to be swept underneath the carpet, then it doesn't matter what government is in. They, they play their politics, you know, but they just need to be careful to give, you know, people what they want. The 100 or 200 or 300 survivors, you know, it's not a lot for the government. They just, you know, the government have just given 1.5 billion to another party so they can keep in government. They just need to sort us out. The, light, the world is watching, you know, how this government treats their citizens and, and how, how um, you know, how this country truly should be a light for people. But, of course, I don't think that's actually going to happen. So in six months' time, we're still going to have the fight. A year later, I don't know if it's going to improve if, if they truly listen to people. But once the media attention's gone away, and the, you know, the tower block becomes a tourist attraction like the Blue Door. I don't know, but we'll fight. Thank you, Nicholas, again for letting us uh, publish this, your story from, from a few years ago. And uh, thank you for being <laughs> you. And uh, thank you for supporting uh, Pushback Talks and, and being such a fighter for your community. And by being that, also being a fighter for, for communities around the world. Your voice is so important, and your story is so important. I'm, I, I, I feel it's so fantastic that Frederick and his team recorded it because it needs to kind of exist, you know, just sort of have a permanence. And uh, thanks so much for sharing it with with us and and the world now. Thank you. More than welcome. We will also put it up on YouTube, uh, Nicholas. So if you want to share it with friends and so on, you're you're welcome, of course. Any final words from you? Um, well, for me, it's um, just actually to thank you guys, you know, to bring to the world's attention uh, of what is happening to our to our planet and to our our rights. You know, there's there's people out there that just want to profit um, through misery and where, you know, our human rights, you know, especially to adequate housing, it's so important. So your voice is 
of this global thing and uh, I'll just I'll just bless you for shouting it out and um, and I'll be there along this journey to um, to support and and voice it out as well. Thank you and friends, a new hug from Malmo to London to Ottawa and 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 I'd see you soon and and I hope you can both have a a happy holiday, Christmas or whatever is important for you and and let's hope that 2021 will be a little bit better. It's, I say it will be the year of the needle. <laughs> because oh we all, we're all waiting to get the needle into our oh, bodies right. with this, the cure that will make us being able to, to hug it for real again. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Frederick. Thank you, Thank you very Thanks, much. Nicholas. Thank you. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>